Welcome here, everyone. Uh, this past week, we had our annual meeting as a church family, and uh, you know, a lot of good information came out, and so our board chairman, Myron Johnson, is here just to share some of the highlights of that meeting. Thanks, Leighton. And so as Leighton said, I'm Myron Johnson, and I have the privilege of serving on our board here at Ebenezer. And I'd like to provide you with just a brief update uh, from the board with respect to our AGM uh, that we had on Wednesday night. Uh, so first, I must say, what an encouraging time we had together, just hearing about the work that God is doing in the different ministry areas within Ebenezer. It was just such an encouraging time together. Um, and I do want to just get right into my updates here as I have a bit to work through, uh, so bear with me. Um, first, I'd like to just provide you with a financial update. Uh, it's incredible how God has just continued to provide for us as a church through your faithfulness in giving. Um, so you'll see an image up here. Um, year to date, our giving has remained very stable and is up slightly from last year at this time. So this year we're at about 670000 uh, to date. That's in our fiscal year versus 575000 So thank you very much for your faithfulness in giving. I would also like to highlight that although we are slightly ahead in our giving, uh, you'll see that seasonally we typically carry a deficit at this time of year. Um, this year is no different, uh, with that deficit being approximately 105000 and we have said this before as well, but you ultimately know that we rely on your generosity here at Ebenezer. So um, as we move into our year end, we ask you to consider your giving towards uh, Ebenezer and our operations and how the church might be part of your giving plans. And we would love to be able to finish this year in a strong financial position. So that's our general operations. I'd also like to give you an update on the capital project front. So for those of you that may not have been with us over the last four years, in 2018 as a church, we felt called to step out in faith with a capital project, which, which finished up here now last year. So this included all the new gathering space to the southwest of the building, uh, the new chapel space, which we have our coffee time in, uh, the corridor along that side of the building, and the new entryway. Uh, the budget for this project was $3.7 And as a church, we pledged roughly $3.3 towards this project. And it's just incredible that as of the date of our 2022 fiscal year financials, which we just approved on Wednesday, we had received $3.1 million in our pledges. Uh, this is something that is just really amazing that I want to highlight because it means that we collected 95% of the pledges that were committed. And this was through a very challenging season through COVID. Um, as part of our year-end audit, our auditors, uh, Buckberger Berg, um, we met with our accountant who works for them, and she was just amazed that we were able to see this kind of success. So thank you all for your obedience and giving towards this project and, and honoring your pledges. So that being said, where are we at today on this project? Currently, we have a total debt outstanding of approximately $520,000. Uh, which for a church of our size is very manageable. Um, but I also ask that you would consider this as an area of your giving going into year end as well. I think it would be amazing if as part of our Christmas banquet, we could see this reduced to possibly nothing 
or reduced significantly and paid off fully. So, so please consider this and, and pray about how you may want to give towards this. Okay, so that's our finances. Now I'm going to shift gears and give you an update on our succession planning efforts that we've been working on. Um, as many of you know already, we've been working closely with Pastor Layton over these last two years with respect to succession planning, and there's been a lot of work and conversations that have happened even since our spring ACM. So just a very quick recap. In February of 21, we formed a succession planning committee comprised of five board members and four general members. Uh, this committee was, uh, or is co-chaired by Trevor Thiessen and Ivan Olford. Uh, we also hired a succession planning consultant, Marin Coots, who is brought in alongside this committee's work. Over the next year, this committee spent time listening to you. We listened and engaged together through sharing times, through the journey wall process, through dessert nights, and we conducted some initial staff interviews. Uh, we also researched other churches and leadership models for similar-sized churches. Uh, we had conversations as well with other, other church leaders and elders in different churches. Then in the spring of 22, we began working towards a draft forward-looking plan. We had conversations with all of our pastoral staff and sharing times, and, and this included uh, some of our longest-standing partner congregation leaders. And then most recently, we brought the entire staff team together to process and discuss this together. So up until this point, we've really been focused on gathering and processing of information. And now we're at the turning point where we're moving towards implementation. So I just want to make a comment before we move to our, our next slide. Uh, and I want to acknowledge Leighton specifically. Um, I just I want to acknowledge how fortunate we are to have a leader like him uh, who has approached this process the way that he has. Just about two years ago, Leighton came to the board and he said, I'm discerning that it's time to have the conversation about succession planning. And he asked for our help in that process. We as the board in our conversations felt it was important to start moving towards a date. And we asked for that from Leighton. In turn, he gave us a date that was very generous in terms of the amount of time we were given to work through this. And, and I guess more than this, I just want to acknowledge that, you know, Leighton has really submitted himself in humility to this entire process. He's been there to offer wisdom and, and discernment and insight to the board, and he's been very engaged, and yet he's also respected the board's authority and has not steered the process at all. I, in my perspective, and I think I can speak for all of our board members in saying that he's demonstrated what it truly means to be a servant leader. Uh, one of the key things that came forward consistently from our initial information gathering is we've grown as a church, and Leighton's role has continued to grow in just about every regard. Uh, we have more people, uh, more responsibility with respect to our partner congregations, uh, we have more operational responsibilities. We have a larger facility. We're providing more online resources. We have more staff and HR requirements. So just generally what's happening under the umbrella of Ebenezer is a lot more. Um, so due to this, or part of the reason, 
uh, is that we're now, in response to that, moving forward in our succession planning, we'll be splitting Leighton's role into two roles, a co-leadership model. So how will this work? In this model, there will be two lead pastors that will report to the board. They will have equal authority within the church. From a governance perspective, both lead pastors would attend all board meetings and be required to provide and present written reports to the board. The expectations of the two lead pastors that they, that they would work collaboratively to lead the setting of the overall vision and direction for how the church, including uh, for how the church would, would uh, uh, move forward, including development and maintenance of a strategic plan. They'd be responsible to develop their own systems for working together. So this would include who is responsible for what. So as an example, if one leader is gifted in teaching and communication and the other gifted in areas more executive and operational, they would work together to divide up responsibilities accordingly. Um, the succession planning committee, as we move forward in the search process, and as we evaluate strengths and giftings, this will also be a critical part of our work. Uh, finally, the two leads will be responsible to resolve any conflict that emerge between them or their respective areas of leadership. As a board, we would continue to be consistent in our engagement. Uh, we'd be actively engaged in the vision setting process and ensuring how we continue to support our key leaders with sound policy. And this is consistent with uh, what we've been doing. So I've just put a lot out there. Um, I'm going to pause and just suggest that what we've outlined here is, is exactly how we have been operating as a church. The only difference is that up until this point, the position of lead has been held by one individual. As a board, our authority has always been in the governance aspects of how we operate, so developing and improving the vision and direction of the church. But in terms of the day-to-day -day oper operations, um, that's always been under the authority of our key leader, Leighton. So obviously there, there's also open communication that would happen as part of that relationship and oftentimes uh, Leighton would ask the board to speak into operational matters but ultimately he is the authority on operational decisions. Um, so just a couple frequently asked questions. Is co-leadership something that is new? Um, the short answer is no, this is not a new model of leadership. In our own experience and research, uh, many of the larger churches and organizations have moved to a co-leadership model. Even within Saskatoon, there are churches actively operating under this model. And even within our own board, we have individuals who have worked either directly in a co-leadership model or have been involved in the governing of a co-leadership model. Another question, are we looking externally or internally for candidates in the recruiting process? Both external and internal candidates will, will be able to apply in the process. This is no different than the process that, that Leighton went through when he was hired. Uh, another key question that I'll touch on is what happens to Leighton and Brenda and their family after he retires as lead pastor? Um, we need to understand that just like many of us have called Ebenezer home for many years, uh, we've also been Leighton and Brenda's and their growing family uh, a home for them. 
Um, and I would like to suggest that upon retirement for Leighton, uh, we would hope that it may look like more like a repurposing, where Leighton would be able to engage in a different way and in a different pace. So bottom line is we will always continue to have our arms open to Leighton and Brenda and their family. And Leighton has indicated that they would like to continue to call this their home as well. Upon his retirement, uh, obviously there will be a period of time uh, where Leighton likely disengages to take a well-deserved break. And as a church who's gained so much from his leadership, we want to be able to respect and honor him in this way as well. A couple, point, a couple more points just related to this item is, you know, we recognize that the succession planning process isn't just all about looking forward. Uh, we believe that in order to do succession well, we need to continue to look after and care for Leighton and his family through this time. So to that end, the board has established a committee led by Beth Epp, focused on honoring and caring for Leighton and his, and his family through this process. Uh, one more point that I think is important to acknowledge is just that there will be a natural grieving process for us as we, as we move through this as a church, and, and that this is actually a sign of health, that it's in response to just reflecting on, on how well Leighton has led, led us as a church. Leighton has been involved in, in, in many of our lives in, in personal ways, and, and in our most vulnerable times. He's married many of us. He's been at our bedsides in the hospital or with our families through difficult battles. He's been there for us when we've lost loved ones. And he's dedicated our kids. So it's important for us as a church that we honor Leighton and his family through this time as well. Uh, please look forward to opportunities that the congregation will also be uh, asked to be involved in that process. Okay, so... Uh, what lies ahead? Right now, we're just the beginning of November and January, which at this time, positions will be posted and applications will be received. Uh, February through March 2023, applicants will be interviewed. April 2023, if the candidating process uh, will move forward, sorry, with the candidating process. And the goal is to hopefully have something that we can present to the congregation for vote at the spring ACM. And then finally, uh, May to June would be the goal of, of seeing the handoff of new leadership. And ultimately, our goal would, would be to have new leadership in place for the fall kickoff 2023. I realize I've put a lot out there. Um, we haven't had many chances to connect just due to COVID and everything as, as a board and congregation. So um, I've put a lot out there and, and we needed to provide you with an update. This was overdue. If you do have any questions or thoughts, we would love to have a conversation with you as a board. So uh, please, please find any one of us board members or you can email us at board at ebenezerbaptist.ca. And finally, just a prayer request, uh, as a board and succession planning team, and for us as an entire church, uh, we just ask for your continued prayer. Prayer for wisdom and discernment through this process, prayer for unity as a church, and prayer for soft hearts that we would be able to hear God's voice and respond. So thank you very much for your time this morning from the board. Okay, good morning, everyone. 
So my name is Leighton, I'm the guy that Myron was just talking about, and currently I'm the lead pastor, but apparently that's changing sometime pretty quick here, so thanks for letting me know, Brian, uh, Myron, I appreciate the heads up on that. Uh, <clears throat> no, actually, I, I really do appreciate our board, and I appreciate Myron, and uh, you know they've done a great job of leading through this season, and I have high confidence, high confidence in them moving forward. Um, now listen, as I mentioned last week, we're starting a new sermon series today. And for those new to Ebenezer, um, we like to pick a book of the Bible and just kind of work our way through that. And, and the reason we, we like to do that is, is for a few reasons. Number one, it's, it's our hope that by doing this, we actually get to know the scriptures better. And we also get to know uh, Jesus, whom the scriptures point to better. Uh, but there is another reason why we do this. It's because uh, it forces us to, to look at um, all of God's word, uh, like the judgment of God that we talked about last week as when I spoke, and not just you know, looking at uh, the, the passages of Scripture that we like or that we agree with or that we feel comfortable preaching from. And so when we go through a book of the Bible, we, we take it as it is, and we just deal with the things that come our way. Now today we're going to begin the book of 1 Timothy, in a series that I'm calling uh, How Stuff Works, or, or Life Together in the Family of Faith. But before we get into 1 Timothy, just let me just share a bit of something by way of introduction. Um, I was just thinking the other day that even though I've been on staff here for, for over 34 years already, that there are many people that don't know me very well, especially if you've just recently started coming to Ebenezer. And so uh, I know that there's lots of people here in the second service that are newer to us, and so you don't, you don't know really who I am. You just see me as this talking head up in front. You don't know the things I like or the things that have formed me or shaped me. And I, and I know that's true is because uh, a lot of our, our kind of the old guard go to the first service for some reason, and, and the newer people come to the second service. So I can crack a joke in the first service, and people laugh. And when I crack that same joke in this service, you guys just stare at me. It's very, <laughs> it's very intimidating, I have to say. Um, so let me just tell you a bit of my, my backstory, and, and I would like to say that uh, I would consider myself a reluctant or hesitant pastor, <clears throat> not, not because I'm unwilling to follow God, because some kind of questionable past that I have, uh, quite the opposite. I've actually been very, very blessed to have a, a really rich spiritual heritage. <clears throat> not only do my parents know and love the, the Lord, but so did my grandparents, and so did my great-grandparents. And I have several uncles and aunts and siblings who have committed themselves to serve the Lord for a lifetime as, as pastors and missionaries. And so in, in our family circle, the joke was that whenever we gathered as an extended family, and, and you know, back you know, 20 or 30 years ago, we did that often, we would say that whenever we gathered, a, a church service would just break out. There were so many pastors and missionaries and stuff there. See, they laughed in the first service on that one <clears throat> and not in the second service. I'm not going to compare you very often, but just every once in a while, I'll just let you know. <clears throat> now, I remember as a child sitting around the kitchen table uh, after a meal, listening to my parents and grandparents and aunts and uncles talk about the Bible. They, they would talk about all sorts of theology things and interpretation of Scripture and things that spoke to them. And, so, and it was fascinating for me as a child just to sit there and to listen to them, and we would just linger at the table and not go and play. And, and so it should be no surprise to you when I say that, that uh, all of my siblings and myself made the decision to follow Jesus Christ at a very early uh, age of life. So it wasn't my background that made me reluctant to become a pastor. 
It was actually an event and that happened to me back in, in grade seven, and it, and it shaped me more than I care to admit. Um, now, just think back to grade seven for the, those of you that are here. And uh, back in, in that grade for me, we had to give a speech in front of the class. And uh, even though I was well prepared, like my, my nerves like just overtook me. And I ended up aborting my speech partway through because I was about to faint. And for a 13-year-old boy who took pride in his uh, athletic macho-ness, that was a very humiliating experience. And Satan actually used that experience to fill me with this unreasonable anxiety and fear and implant a lie that the God would never use me. <clears throat> now, I want you just to fast forward that thinking to, to college. And, and I went to Briarcrest Bible College after high school, mainly because my, my parents insisted that all their children go to at least one year Bible school. And um, I was a typical teenager, so on the outside, I probably wasn't too bad, but on the inside, uh, I could tell that my heart had drifted away from God. And so I, I went to school, to a school that my parents had gone to. And so back then, the practice was is they would ask students to pray in chapel or pray at the beginning of class. And, and I, I was so scared I was going to get asked to pray that I would show up late for class and I would hide in, at, at certain places just so I wouldn't be asked to do things. And so it was, it was just ridiculous, to be honest, of, of the things I went through. Now, the irony, in a lot of ways, especially if you know me, because I always joke about my musical prowess, but the irony is I actually made a music team that year. And I was talking to some of the, the girls here. I brought a picture of my team, and, and I don't know if you, you can pick me out. I, I'm, the, I'm the dashing, handsome guy with hair in... Uh, in the middle there with the nice key, you know, the keychain thing there, or the, or the pocket watch, like this styling, if I could ever say that, right? And, and I, I was on that team, uh, not because I could sing, it's because I played the tuba, and I was apparently the only one in the school that did. <coughs> so, um, you know, it, my, my fears continued there, and so we actually, uh, we actually toured across Canada and the U.S. for the school in the summer months. We were that good, okay? <laughs> and uh, even then, my, my, public, uh, my fear of public speaking controlled me. So I, I had to stand up and introduce myself in front of a church. Just, hi, I'm Leighton Erickson from Musiman. Like, how hard can that be? But I would hyperventilate before I do that. And my brother is actually on your far right over in that corner over there. And I would, I would say to him, if you see me looking at you with just like panic in my eyes, you introduce me. Like, that's how bad it was. <clears throat> and so I think it would be safe to say I never, ever believed that I could be a pastor. And quite honestly, I, I never wanted to be. Uh, so after two years of school, I left my, with my, my diploma in biblical studies, and I began to chase my dream of making money and enjoying life. But God had a different plan for my life. And out of the blue one day, I received a call from a Bible camp that I worked at for just one summer as a counselor. And, and the director asked me if I would consider being his assistant director that summer. And for some unknown reason, I just said, I said a quick yes, and I quit my job, and I traveled north. And um, at the time, I was a motorcycle salesperson, and I loved it. I got to drive lots of bikes, and that was a lot of fun. Um, and before I actually got to the camp, the roles shifted there, and instead of being the assistant director, I was elevated to the program director, and I was automatically the leader over a number of staff people. 
And uh, it was through that role at the camp that, that uh, a church in Warman called me up and asked me if I would like to come and be their youth pastor. And I, once again, I said yes, even though I was going to school full-time uh, at the U of S to become a teacher. Someone asked me after the second or first service, so explain how you want to become a teacher and yet you're scared to get up in front of people. Well, it was going to be a phys ed teacher. I just have to bark out orders every once in a while and throw a ball at someone if they weren't paying attention. So it seemed pretty reasonable to me. Um, but, uh, you know, I, so one year into my, my role as youth pastor there, Ebenezer uh, Church, and I, I started attending Ebenezer as, as a college student, and they, so they knew me, and I played hockey on their team and stuff. They called me up, and they said, hey, we just formed a new position of youth ministry, and we'd like you to apply. Would you consider applying? And so I, I said no, because I was committed to this church in, in Warman. And then uh, a year later, um, they gave me another call saying they hadn't filled the position yet and wanted to know if I would reconsider. And so some things had shifted in my life, and so I did reconsider and said yes. Now, side story on this. I remember talking to my, my good friend, who was also my boss and mentor from the camp I worked at. And I really trusted him, and I said, so, like, like be honest with me. Do you, do you think I have what it takes to be a pastor? You know what his words were? He says, honestly, Layden, no, never. <laughs> and, uh, you know, as humbling as that was, uh, I also came to realize uh, that, that God just doesn't call the most talented or the most charismatic people. He calls those whose hearts are set on him and who, who are willing to walk by faith and not by sight. And when I say by faith, I mean that we, we trust in God's provision and power rather than our own wisdom, talents, and strength, which we often do. And so I, I served as Ebenezer's youth pastor and college and career pastor for 14 years, uh, and then the position of lead pastor came up. So it's Ian Long's uh, uh, father, is Pastor West, and so he retired, and the position came up. And, uh, but once again, my, my old fears just reared their ugly head. And so one weekend... I stepped on stage to officiate a wedding and, and totally out of the blue, like if you had asked me the day before how I was doing, because I kind of overcame some of those fears from before. If you had asked me the day before how I was doing, I would have said, perfect, just fine. I got up on stage in front of all the people and I had an incredible panic attack just like I did when I was in grade seven as a 13-year-old guy. And I wanted to run off the stage and, and all my fears from grade seven just welled up inside of me and I remember thinking, how can I apply for the role of lead pastor? And some of the board was asking me to consider that when I, I'm, I'm even scared to say my name in front of the church family. And so, um, but it was in the depth of my fear and confusion that God spoke to me. And he reminded me uh, that there are many times in the scriptures where, where he chooses the foolish things of the world to shame the wise things and the weak things of the world to shame the strong. So, so God doesn't always pick the most obvious or the best. He picks normal, average people that have foibles and fears, and he uses them in some way. And he reminded me in those moments of his faithfulness in the past and reassured me of, his, of his, the promise of his presence in the future. And I remember praying this prayer because I was sitting right over in this section of the church here, and, I, and I, I said, okay, God, if you are truly calling me to this role, like, I mean, truly calling me to this role, and if, you, and if you're going to, uh, if you want me to be here and you want to use me, 
despite of what I think of myself or how I'm feeling right now, I'm going to trust you and, and I'll, I'll apply. But if you don't, then, then don't let the application go anywhere. And then when the application went somewhere, then, then don't let them pick me as the candidate. And when they pick me as a candidate, then don't let them vote me in. And then all of a sudden, I guess I'm here, right? And, and that, was, that was 17 years ago that that happened. And I have to say that even now, some of the, those fears still rise up inside of me. Uh, but God has been faithful, and up until this point, I've never <laughs> I've fainted on stage. I just check and see if you're, you're with me or not. See, the, other, the first service, again, they laughed a little bit harder at that. But, but thank you for your, your small attempt at that. Appreciate it. Now, all joking aside, uh, why do I share that story with you? It's actually not a story about my fears. It's actually a story uh, that tells you who I am because details matter. And as I walk through my story, there's a good chance that there were parts of my story that, that you could relate to. And knowing my backstory might help you understand me a bit better. And you might understand, you know, why I get on stage to preach. Because it's not because I love the limelight, because I, I don't. I'd rather not be up here. But it's because I, I believe the Word of God is just that, God's Word. And that God's Word gives us everything we need for life and godliness. And so that's why we, we take time to open God's Word and go through a book of the Bible. And that's why I, I overcome some of my fears and come up, because I believe that God has something to say to us. Now, with that said, turn to 1 Timothy uh, chapter 1. And today we're going to look at, at the introduction found in the first two verses of the book. That's, we're just going to look at two verses today. And specifically, we're going to just key on three words in these two verses. So here we go. This is what it says in, in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. It says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the command of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus our hope, to Timothy, my true son in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father, and Christ Jesus our Lord. Now, the first word is what? Okay, I mean, it's not what. The, the first word is Paul, right? And so if you're unfamiliar with the Bible or this letter, then the first question you should probably ask yourself is, who is Paul? Because he is the human author of this letter that we're about to study. And to understand who Paul is, is to understand his backstory. And to understand his backstory is to understand why he says what he says and when he says it in the scriptures and letters that he writes. Now, the second words we're going to look at is found in the first part of verse 2. And it is simply to Timothy. Timothy is the person to whom Paul is writing. And so it's probably good for us to know who these two people are if we're going to, begin, if we're going to study the book of 1 Timothy. Okay? So let's dig in and let's look at Who's Paul? Again, if you're, in, if you're new to the faith, you need to know that, uh, that Paul was a very, very significant figure in the Bible and to our Christian faith. Not only did he write this letter, he is the human author of two-thirds of the New Testament. Now, uh, since neither Paul or Timothy is here today to tell us their backstory, we actually need to do some work to discover what that is. And we need to kind of dig in the scriptures. And, and both their backstories are found in the book of Acts. And so now if you want to, you can flip over to the book of Acts. As I'm just going to walk through some passages there really quickly to get a sense of what's happening. Now, uh, Paul's story really comes to a climax in Acts chapter 9. 
And, and Timothy kind of enters the picture in Acts uh, chapter 16. But to understand their story, we need to start at the beginning of the book of Acts because it kind of fills in some of the details of how they got to where they are. So now in, in Acts chapter 1, just context-wise, Jesus has, has uh, been crucified, he's been buried, and he has risen from the dead. And if we were to look at, at chapter or verse 8 of chapter 1, which is, which is a very, very well-known verse in the Christian uh, world, we would see that the risen Lord tells the disciples that just before he ascends to heaven that the gospel that he has been preaching and that's about him is going to take root and it's going to spread from Jerusalem, where they are, to Judea, uh, through Samaria, and then to the ends of the earth. And that's exactly what happens. What, what began with, with 12 people grew to 120 people in the first chapter of Acts and then to 3,000 people uh, in the second chapter of Acts. And, and most of those people were of Jewish descent, but they were uh, men, women, and children. But their hearts were, were changed and transformed by the gospel. By the time we get to Acts chapter 4, there were now 5,000 people and, and in this chapter, we, we begin to see this, this tension that was just rising up amongst the, the people in the Jewish community in particular. You see, the Jewish community at that time was looking for a Messiah to come and rescue them from their oppression. Uh, but Jesus, who claimed to be the Messiah, didn't fit their, their mold. You see, the people were looking for a political savior that would set them free from the oppressors, the Roman people. And Jesus came to, as a spiritual savior to set them free from the power of sin. Now, regardless uh, of that, um, the Jewish leaders began to be, they were very upset with Jesus and now his followers who are numbering in the thousands. Not only was uh, their message uh, of Jesus spreading, but it, but it began to, to, to spread in different ways. It began to, to jump fences and, and barriers. And so it was now male and female were putting their faith in Jesus and and the rich and the poor were putting their faith in Jesus, and the Jew and the Gentile. And even some of the, the priests of that day were, were, were moving from Judaism over to Christianity and putting the, their faith in Jesus and the way. And so um, the, the Judas leaders, they just thought, like, we've got to stop this because it's going gonna, it's gonna to ruin our, our faith and our livelihood. And so in Acts chapter 4, they arrest Peter and John, and they command them not to speak in the name of Jesus anymore, which Peter and John refused to do. And uh, so then they elevate it, and in Acts chapter 5, we, they don't just arrest Peter and John, they arrest all the apostles, and by apostle I mean anyone who is, those that had seen Jesus uh, in person, face to face, heard his teaching, and were commissioned to preach the good news about them. And they brought all the apostles before this council, or the, the Jewish Sanhedrin, which made it, was made up of, of Pharisees and Sadducees and scribes and, and priests. And in this time, it says in the scripture, in verse 27, they strictly commanded them not to teach in the name of Jesus. They strictly did. And, um, and, but that didn't work either, of course. And instead, pre Peter preached the gospel to them, and that really ticked them off. And so some of the Jewish leaders at the time, they, they wanted to put uh, the apostles to death like right in that moment. That is until a rabbi named Gamaliel stands up and convinces them to wait it out. And, and I have his verses up here on the screen, but just before I read them, he had, he had the advantage of history because he had seen other uprisings come and go, and, and his thought was this. 
You know, he says, um, therefore, in this present case, I advise you, leave these men alone. Let them go. For if their purpose or activity is of human origin, it'll fail. But if it's from God, you might not be able to stand, able to stop these men, and you will find yourself fighting against God. Now, let me just pause here for a quick second, and, I, and I'm just going to... Um, there, there are really two um, mainstreams of uh, rabbinic schools of the law that day. There was the, the Shammai group, and there was the Halal group. Uh, the Shammai group was more militant and zealous in their, in their approach. And so they had a strong influence on, on the council that was there. And so they're the ones that wanted us to rise up and to kill the, the apostles. The Hillel group was more moderate and temperate, and Gam- Gamaliel was part of the Hillel group, and, and Saul was his disciple. Now, let me just, I might have confused you there because I, I was talking about Paul, now I'm talking about Saul. So most of you understand this, but just know that, that those names are interchangeable. So anytime you hear me say Saul today, I'm, I'm meaning Paul. When I say Paul, it's still Saul, okay? And so I, I think it was, it was more, there was, a, there was a Jewish name, Saul, and then his Greek name would, would have been Paul, so it was common for them to be called two different names there. Okay? So, but, but Paul, or Saul, was one of his disciples. And so what happened is the apostles were released, but rather than the discour- after a beating, but rather than discouraging them, they left rejoicing that they were worthy of suffering for, uh, for the name of Jesus, and they continued to preach daily in the temple and house to house. And so it kind of backfired on the people. Now, what happens here is, is things start escalating and the tension continues to rise. And this group of militant Jewish leaders arrest a man named uh, Stephen. So this is the Shammai group. And, uh, they, and Stephen would become the first Christian martyr. Now, why do I tell you that story and why is it important in the context of understanding Paul's backstory? It's because when we look at chapter 7, verse 58, we see that, that uh, they took Stephen out of the town to stone him, and so that was a custom. They would do that, and then one of the ways they executed people was by throwing stones at them until they died. And it says that, on, and the witnesses or the people that were going to to throw stones at Stephen, uh, the the coat, coats were bulky, and so they wanted to get some velocity. So they they would t- take off their coats, and it says they laid their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. Okay, now I thought you said that Saul was from the Halal group the more moderate group. But he's being influenced by the Shammai group, the more militant group. And things continue to escalate. Uh, Here's what we know, so so we know that. And so in the next chapter, we learn that Saul uh, actually approved of the execution. And then it says that he began to destroy the church. And, And Saul began going from house to house and dragging off both men and women and putting them in prison. And this great persecution swept across Jerusalem, scattering the church. So even though Saul was trained under Gamaliel, uh, he, was, he was really influenced by that militant thing, side. Okay, now, that brings us up to chapter 9, which is kind of the, the big part of, of about Paul and Saul. So here's what chapter 9 says. Uh, it says, Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. Okay, so you, you can feel the tension there. He's not very happy. And then he went to the high priest and asked for letters to the synagogues in Damascus. So if he found anyone there who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners back to Jerusalem. 
And so he, he, he's really attacking the church. And, and if you're a Christian at the time, you are very, very afraid of this man named Saul who's just running rampant and, and capturing you and taking you to prison. And then it happened. There was this supernatural, miraculous event that took place on the road to Damascus. And a lot of you know the story. It's kind of the story of, of Saul's conversion. And it says in verse 3, As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him, and he fell to the ground. And he heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? And Saul said, Who are you, Lord? And I'm sure he was very confused. It's like, who is this person talking from the clouds? He must be Lord, but I don't know why I'm persecuting him. And then the voice said, I am Jesus who you are persecuting. Now, how's that for an aha moment? Like, here you are, you're, you're just going to, to capture and kill some more Christians. And on the road, you have a supernatural encounter and you realize the people that you're going to, to see is, is, the, is, the, is the person who you're, um, uh, or the, the one that you've been persecuting. And so, so I'm, I'm sure that Saul's mind was just, was just stirring inside there. By the way, the people with him heard a, a noise, a voice, but they didn't see anyone. But when Saul got up, he was blind, and so they escorted him to Damascus, and he was there for three days, and he never ate or drank. So that was literally uh, Saul's come-to-Jesus moment. And then the Bible tells us that, that there was, a, in a vision, God tells another man in, in that town, Damascus, named Ananias, to go to Saul. And Ananias knew his reputation, and he was arguing with God, saying, like, like I, it's not safe to go there. And God assured him, I have a plan for this man, and you just need to obey me and go there. And so, so Ananias obeyed and went there and then ministered to him, and the, eventually the scales fell off, and he was baptized, and he was saved. And then after some time spent with, with some of the other apostles, uh, all of a sudden, the next scene, we see him back in the synagogues. But this time, he's not there to, to persecute the Christians. He's there proclaiming that Jesus Christ really is the Son of God. Now, you'd think, you'd think that would make the Christians happy to see Saul in there, but they were so scared of Saul that they thought that he, that he was trying to trick them and infiltrate the church. And so, so they wouldn't kind of spend time with him. They rejected him. And the Jewish leaders who knew that Saul had turned away from things, they now were trying to, to kill Saul. So it was a very, very uh, treacherous place for him. So eventually the Christians of the day recognized that this conversion was real and the Jews were trying to kill him. And so they sent them off to a place called Tarsus, uh, as a safe house, as a safe place. Now, where's Tarsus, and does it have any significance to us? The answer is yes. I mean, not where, but, but the answer is yes, that's significant. So Tarsus, and I actually had a picture I was going to put on, but I, it must be copyright because I couldn't download it once or I couldn't put it on the slideshow once I, I downloaded it. So, but but uh, Tarsus was Saul's hometown, and it was in eastern Turkey bordering Syria, and, and kind of, it was kind of a center of, uh, of the, kind of the crossroads of the known world. So it was a main road that lots of places go through. Like if you wanted to go to Greece, you went through Tarsus. If you wanted to go to Italy, you go through Tarsus. So just, it, it was known for its, its influence and exports and, and culture. Now, I don't know if you're picking up on all this, 
but uh, you, you will soon, and that is that, that this sovereign God is orchestrating Paul's life to be his servant, both with the things that Saul chose to do and the things that happened by the circumstances. You see, uh, Saul had, had uh, God had strategically had Saul trained by the very best of the best of, of the uh, rabbis. And he knew the Old Testament like no one else. It was amazing. He understood Jewish culture and it was top notch. And he also, being from Tarsus, understood Greek, the world and Greek culture. And all these things, God was going to pull together and give him a ministry that only he could have. And so Saul's story continues. And Tarsus is actually near another place called Antioch that you might have heard about in the Bible, which is also a significant place in the spread of the gospel. In Acts chapter 11, we, we see that the gospel came to Antioch, which is a predominantly Greek-speaking place. And many of the Greek people there came to faith in Jesus, so much so that the, the, the leaders back in Jerusalem heard about it. And they said, we better go and see what's going on there. So they sent a guy named Barnabas to go and check out the church of Antioch. Now, I didn't mention this before, but, but Barnabas, is, he's known as the son of encouragement. He's actually the person that when Saul was converted, said to the rest of the, the Christian people, he's okay, I'm going to vote for him. And so, so there, Barnabas goes to Antioch, which is, which, is near, which is near Tarsus. And then once he gets there, he realizes that all these people have converted to Christianity, but they just need to be grounded in their faith. And so he's sitting there thinking, hmm, who do I know that's a good teacher, that understands the scriptures, that understands Greek culture, and is close to us? Hmm, who could I pick? And of course, Paul came to mind. So he went and got Paul from Tarsus, went over to Antioch, and Paul stayed there for over a year teaching them. Now, uh, and again, God used all those things to, to be the perfect match for what he needed. Uh, now, eventually, Antioch became this major sending church. They became a church that sent out many missionaries, and they sent out uh, Barnabas and, and Paul. Now, later, that switched to always Paul and Barnabas, Barnabas but initially it was Barnabas and Paul. And so they went out. And so on, on the first missionary journey, uh, Paul wrote one book called the book of Galatians. Second missionary journey, he wrote two books, First and Second Thessalonians. Third missionary journey, he wrote three books, First and Second Corinthians and Romans. Then at the end of the, the book of Acts, he appeals to Caesar uh, and is arrested. He appeals to Caesar to, to get safety from the Jewish people that are trying to kill him. And while in jail, he writes four more books, the prison epistles, which are Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon. And when he is finally released from prison, he, he uh, recruits two next-generation leaders named Titus and Timothy, and he takes them with them and he mentors them, eventually leaving them with two significant churches, one in Crete, where uh, Titus pastored, and Timothy was sent to the church in Ephesus, where he pastored there. And it was uh, after that point that Paul writes his last three letters to Titus and 1 Timothy, and then one more just before he dies, 2 Timothy. Okay, so that now kind of leads us into uh, Timothy, and I'll be very, very quick on this one. Timothy was, was kind of the opposite of Paul. Uh, he was the young man that received this letter, and his backstory is completely different from Paul's. 
Timothy was, was normal. He was just your average Joe. He was a small town boy, a normal guy who God used in a very, very powerful way. Now, scholars believe that the Timothy first met Peter, when, or, sorry, first met Paul when, when Paul traveled through Lystra in his first missionary journey. And he would have been about, Timothy would have been about 15 years old at the time. Okay, so not a lot um, older than some, some of you guys here. And, uh, and so he, uh, he heard the gospel and with the help of his mother and grandmother developed a, a strong faith in Jesus. Now let me just put a pause here because the mother and grandmother play very, very significant roles in this young Timothy's life. Uh, we pick up the story then in Acts chapter uh, 16. And this is about probably four to five years later. So now Timothy would have been about anywhere from 19 to 21 years old. So that's like the college and career group this year. And, uh, and Paul comes there and he, and he hears about this Timothy guy and he invites him to join him in this ministry. This is what he says. Paul came to Derby and then to Lystra where a disciple named Timothy who lived with his mother, uh, Timothy lived, whose mother was Jewish and a believer, but whose father was, was a Greek. The believers at Lystra and Iconia spoke well of him as well. So here, here's what we know, that he, Timothy was a, a young adult, but he, he was already known for a strong faith. In fact, they call him a disciple. And a disciple was someone who was fully following Jesus Christ and had a vibrant and growing faith in life. Uh, he, was, he was well enough known in what he did that he was known in the surrounding areas as, as this guy that was, that was a young upstart. In other words, he was the real deal. And, and I don't know, um, the only thing we really know, really know about Paul is that, is that um, Paul recognized his character, didn't know anything about his gifting, and invited him to join him in that. Now, we're also told a little bit later that, that, um, that his mother's name was, was Eunice, and his uh, grandmother's name was Lois. And they played a significant role in Timothy's life. So if, if you're a mother here today, or you're a grandmother here today, don't underestimate the role that you play in your kids' and grandkids' lives. It's significant. Now, interestingly enough, um, all we're told about the father was that he was a Greek. We're not told his name. And some scholars would say that the absence of knowing very much about him meant that he, he for sure didn't have very much influence over him spiritually, but maybe he was even an absent father, which makes it even more remarkable of the man that Timothy became. Because studies show us all the time that, 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 that families that don't have a father, uh, that the children have, they, they struggle in life. In fact, in the States right now, I think it's like 94% of the people that are in jail right now, incarcerated, are, come from fatherless homes. That's how important his father is. And so um, here's, here's Timothy, who had, at, at, you know, at best, maybe an absent father. But, but Timothy um, grew in his faith, and he grew in his gifts, and Paul eventually used him to, to, uh, in great ways inside his ministry. He helped him, uh, took him to Thessalonica, which is a, a, a powerful church, took him to the church of Corinth to help out there. Church of Corinth is like, is like Vegas, like it was just a terrible church with all sorts of bad teaching and bad actions. And over time, Timothy developed this real knack of being able to teach the people the right doctrine and helping them move back towards that faith. And then eventually he ended up in, in Ephesus. And that's where, that's where this letter kind of picks up in the next verses, is that, is that 
uh, Paul is writing Timothy, who this small country boy who is now in Ephesus, this, this metropolitan church, and doing a good job. And we'll pick up the story there uh, next week. Now, just before I, I close off, let me just uh, say, so what does this mean for us? Like, why did I tell these stories other than some context? So I want to give you a, a couple of practical things. Uh, you know, it, it means that, that um, when we look at Paul, we see that the, that the story of God's sovereignty, that he made, uh, uh, made him uniquely qualified for the ministries that he wanted him to do. And, and Paul understood this. In fact, I would say to some of you, God has uniquely gifted you in some way. Maybe you're the smartest person in the class. Maybe you're this other person. You have great gifts, people skills, that God's going to gift you in certain ways to be able to, to use you for his glory and his kingdom. Uh, Timothy was a little bit different. Um, he, he was also used by God, but this guy was average. Other words used to describe him, he was young, inexperienced, timid, weak. He's a mixed race. And all those things actually God used to, uh, to really build into him and to, and to use him in God's kingdom. Paul, in, in Ephesians chapter 2, he, may, he says this verse. It's the verse you're familiar with. But he says this, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we, would, we should walk in them. When we say we're his workmanship, it means that we're his masterpiece. That, that God made you just as you are. Okay, so... He might have made you charismatic. Or he might have made you dull. He might have made you brilliant. Or he might have made you just average. Okay? All those, all those things that are unique to you that we think we can't be used by God because we're not this or we're not that, God just kind of tosses those, all those things out and says, I have made you who you are so that, that God can use you. Now I'm going to go back to my story just for a second. Because um, I knew I wasn't the sharpest knife in, in the block. And, uh, and you know, they, they talk about five talent people in, in the scripture, and then there's three talent people and one talent people. I, I say, like, like, I'm a pretty solid two talent person. You know, if the wind's blowing right, I, I can gust up to three talent, right? I'm, I'm not a five talent person, I realize that. But I, I can be faithful in that, in that three talent. But what it did for me in recognizing that I can't be everything is the very first move I made after becoming a lead pastor. It used to take us one year to hire 10 people. In my first year at Ebenezer, I hired, I hired 10 people. I put people around me that were smart and brilliant, and some of those people you even know. You know, people like, like Pastor Chet and, and Pastor Brian, and then I hired people like Cal and, and, and Wes. All these people, because I know that we need to build a team, and I think God's using that for his glory. He's taken my weakness and he's turned it into a strength for the church. And so that's what God does. Is he, is he takes who we are, and he somehow redeems us to be something that we're not. And so I just want to say that the God has uniquely gifted you. And so my question is, what experiences have you had that God might want to use in the lives of other people? What, what background do you come from that God might want to use you to reach a people that people, other people can't reach? And, and all those things... Uh, God will put together when we submit ourselves to him and we put our trust in him and, and it'll bring him glory. So, that's the sermon. Now just give me, let me give you a teaser for next week over, over the service, uh, over the next little while. Uh, this, is, this book is a, a book on, 
on next generation leadership, which is timely for us right now in the succession plan. It's a book that talks about investing in next generation leaders, in, in, in uh, trusting God, in the danger of false teachers, in the importance of prayer, in the order, in order and submission, in the qualifications of what it means one should be to be a leader, of relationships within the family of God, of how we care for people, of how we persevere under pressure, you know, of how stuff works with life in the family of God. And that's what we're going to be looking at over the next little while. So let me just close with a benediction from 1 Timothy. It says this, To the king of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. So go with God's presence, go with God's power, and go with God's peace today. Have a great weekend.